0: Let's start with a word of prayer. Thank you again, Lord, that we don't have to have any fear and death. We are living in a world where people are so afraid and so anxious and fearful. Help us to remember that life is uncertain and that's okay. I pray that you would calm perhaps anyone here today who has an anxious soul and that you would comfort them with your sovereignty, your providence, and your goodness. Let us rest in Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, today, by God's grace, we are landing the plane in our four-part sermon series on persecution. Today's concluding message is going to be a lot heavier on the application, and I would exhort you that if you have not heard the previous three or any of the previous three, that you go back and listen to those because I don't want today's message to be heard in a vacuum as if somehow it could be implied that the answer to this is just do, 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 do. The answer to this is trusting in the Lord's sovereign purposes in all of the suffering that we go through. And so we're going to land the plane on our series of persecution And we've covered a lot of ground, and so now we hit on the application. I want to give to you the outline that um, we, uh, we started with and have stuck with throughout the series here. The first one is the definition of persecution, the compatibility of persecution with the call of the Christian the undignified nature of persecution, the divine purpose and intended blessing of persecution, and then today, instructions to the Christian on how to live through persecution. So here's what we saw from Scripture. We saw that persecution is compatible with Christianity. The prosperity gospel preachers would have us believe otherwise. They teach... That if you become a Christian, and if you experience any kind of opposition, then the reason, you don't have enough faith. And you need to have more faith, and then you wouldn't be sick, or you you wouldn't, you'd have a bigger bank account or whatever. And so now it's because you are lacking in faith that you don't have this blessing in your life. And of course, we saw that persecution is compatible with the call to a Christian. There's no um, separation there. This is part of what we said is Christianity 101, where Jesus says, you follow me, you deny yourself. This is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Then we saw what we called the undignified nature of persecution. And specifically, what we meant by that was that when you are persecuted, you will be slandered, this means that when people persecute you, the real reason is going to be they're persecuting you because you're a Christian, but the stated reason is because of some other reason. So we, we looked at Paul Washer's quote about how we will go down as the biggest bigots and haters of mankind in history. Because we are going to be falsely accused that, just, that we are standing on Scripture, but we're going to be falsely accused that, well, you are just a bigot or you hate people or whatever it might be. And we saw some examples of this even now uh, in Canada. And actually, just this last week, I saw that things are ramping up even more in Canada Uh, and from what I understand, James Coates' church has gone underground um, because of the persecution and opposition that they are facing. Again, it's not stated because you're a Christian. It's stated because you're a danger to the public health, and so that is what we meant by the undignified nature of persecution. Then we saw last week the divine purpose and intended blessing of persecution. We saw how God has a purpose primarily First and foremost, we saw that that was to grow the church. Um, we saw that his blessing uh, or that his intention is to bless each individual Christian. And so if you if you come to today's message and you don't have that background, you're not getting the full meal, um, so to speak. And so I would just encourage you to go back and get some of that background. So, but what we want to do today is we just want to hone in on some of the applications and what it means for me to live through persecution. And so we're going to dive right in. I have 10 applications for you and four sub point applications for you. So, application number one is this preach the gospel. Now, there's going to be a couple of these applications that are a little bit of overlap. I know we briefly saw this one previously, but I'm going to expand on this one um, a little bit here. This should be obvious, but it has to be stated. God uses persecution to grow the church, and so we have to align ourselves with that purpose. If God says... I'm going to use persecution to increase the amount of evangelism that the church is doing. Then maybe God values evangelism. And maybe God values the gospel. And maybe we should just be doing it now, whether we're being persecuted or not. And so I have four sub points underneath preach the gospel subpoint number 1 go fairly straightforward Matthew 28:19 through 20 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I'm with you always to the end of the age Now as it has been observed before in this passage the main verb is make disciples And go is the participle. And so it means this, while you are going, make disciples. It's almost kind of built into the Great Commission. The the core assumption is that you're going to be going. We see this same assumption in Acts 1 in verse 8. Acts 1, 8 is another verse that we call part of this Great Commission, I actually want to just modify that a little bit and say that we should not call Acts 1-8 the Great Commission, but the, the Great Prediction, because God, in, in, in Matthew 28, he, he gives the Great Commission, go, and in Acts 1-8, he says, this will happen. It's, it's not up for debate. God is saying, you will go. And so, Acts 1-8, you will receive power. It's heavy with God's providence and his sovereignty when the holy spirit is come upon you and you will be my witnesses great prediction here and where is this happening it's in jerusalem first of all judea samaria into the end of the earth built into the great commission and the great prediction is uh, is the going aspect of it that you have to go to the ends of the earth to fulfill this and so the gospel call, by necessity, involves going. Now, I did talk about this a little bit last time, and that is I understand that the Lord has not called everybody to go. The Lord has called some to stay. But I think that every Christian should wrestle, should really wrestle through whether the Lord has called them to go or not. And again, as we saw last time, this doesn't mean necessarily that you're Preaching as a pastor, you could be supporting a church plant or a missionary in some other fashion, um, but but it does it does involve going and 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 it involves going even if you stay. By the way, like you have to go to your neighbors and you have to go to your coworkers, and so there's this aspect of the Great Commission that's built into it. So that's sub point number one. Sub point number two is this: take risks for the gospel. This is very antithetical to our current culture. Very antithetical. As Christians, and I don't know if this is something that uh, may be uh, counterintuitive for you or not, but as Christians, we must be risk takers. You can't preach the gospel without taking some sort of risk on some level. We live in a culture right now that has been inundated by the cult of safism, or sometimes it's called safetyism. The apostle Paul certainly knew how to take risks. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now what does Paul do? He does not accept the cult of safetyism. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Paul recognized that he could even die, but he saw the proclamation of the gospel as more necessary, as more essential than even his own safety. John Piper says this. We cannot avoid risk, even if we want to. Ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow is our native air. All of our plans for tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home under the covers or ride the freeways. One of my aims is to explode the myth of safety and to somehow deliver you from the enchantment of security because it's a mirage. It doesn't exist. Every direction you turn, there are unknowns and things beyond your control. You cannot share the gospel without taking some form of a risk. And risk is good risk is good paul gave us the example that risk is good esther took a risk in that story in the old testament about going before the king to save the jews you remember what the the risk was for her if the king did not invite her she could be done for she could die And what did she say? After she was persuaded, she says, if I perish, I perish. And she took a risk to save the Jews. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took a risk in not bowing to the statue. There was a risk involved in that. Jim Elliot took a risk to minister to the Alka Indians, and he paid dearly for that risk with his life. Does anyone say what Jim Ellie did was wrong? And as an ambassador to the king, accomplishing your mission here on this earth is more necessary than preserving your own skin. This is the gospel. You might die on the mission field. You might die on your way to the mission field. You've heard those stories before, right? Say, wow, what a waste of a life. They didn't even get there and they died. You may commit yourself to support a church planter out west, and Crossview Church sends you off, and you get in your car, and you're driving down, and you're halfway through Colorado, and a semi comes out, and you're done. And you didn't even get there. Is that a waste? Absolutely not. If you are going to share the gospel, you must take risks for the gospel. Okay, Even on a small scale, you're risking your reputation, right? Someone's going to mock you for it. You're risking your job. You're risking perhaps notoriety or a position in the community. Taking risks is a way of demonstrating our trust in the Lord. There's a difference between being reckless, okay? We're not saying be reckless. But we have to take risks. It is an acknowledgement. Taking a risk for the gospel is is an acknowledgement that we are not the authors of our own destinies. And so James, in James 4.15, says, you know, to this person who's, you know, saying tomorrow we're going to sell and buy and do this and da-da-da-da-da, he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I mean, none of you knows whether or not you'll make it home today. And you think you will. None of us know that. Drunk driver or whatever. I don't, I don't know. We can't live our lives avoiding risk. Proverbs 62613 the sluggard says there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. There is going to be risk in sharing the gospel. That is subpoint number two. Subpoint number three of preaching the gospel is this. Live light in order to prioritize the gospel. Don't become entangled in the world. Luke 12, 16 through 21, he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. We have to have different values than the world has. Too many things can distract us from the gospel. Paul actually gives an example of this, not with regard to material things, but actually with regard to marriage. And he advises I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, he does make it clear that he is not saying you have done wrong if you've married. But he does simply make an observation. Everything you commit yourself to divides your interests even further. And all Paul is saying is that... We need to make sure to prioritize our relationship with the Lord and our mission on this world it 's not wrong to get married it 's not wrong to, to to get another car or whatever it might be. But we do have to do some sort of uh, internal um, evaluation and simply ask yourself, have I accumulated so many things?" materially speaking on this earth that my interests are so far divided that I can't prioritize the gospel anymore live light you don't need a lot of things in your backpack you just need a couple things so pack light because there's a long road ahead subpoint number 4 make an eternal investments and this is kind of related to the last one, so maybe it's just an extension of that. But Jesus says in Mark eight thirty six, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Obviously, there's a value assessment we have to do here. Paul considers his earthly investments to be loss in comparison to Christ. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, after he gives his whole list of Credentials we are going to have to make very calculated decisions. Where do you work? Where do you play? Where do you shop? What job opportunities do you have to turn down in order to prioritize the gospel? What job opportunities do you accept in order to prioritize the gospel? I'm not saying that we're supposed to live miserable lives and say, what's the hardest possible road I can take? All I'm saying is that the thing that guides our decision-making process is how am I prioritizing the gospel? And if taking this job or moving to this place Eliminates those possibilities, why would I do that? That's number one. Preach the gospel. Number two, application point or instruction point number two, die on the right hills. Not every hill is a hill to die on. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Everything in the Bible is important. Some things in the Bible are of first importance. If every hill is a hill to die on, if every belief that you have is a hill worth dying on, then we are going to find ourselves violating Paul's cry for us to seek out the unity of the church. We have, in our own church here, various views in certain matters. If we were to go around and ask everyone what your view of the end times is, I know that we would get a handful of differing answers. If we fractured, if, if our, just our church, if Crossview Church fractured at every point of disagreement, we could have like 20 churches right here. No, actually, we would have, how many are here today? We would have that many churches. <laughs> that, that's how many churches we would have. Um, we can't die on every hill. We lose our ability to fight for the purity of the gospel when we do that. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and the same judgment. So not every hill is a hill to die on. On the other hand, there are plenty of hills that we should be dying on. And sometimes we don't want to die on those hills justification by faith alone, you die on that hill. That is a hill that you die on. You don't accept anything other than that. Because the second we depart from that, and the second we say, you can have different views on that, now we've invited works into our salvation, and we've denied the gospel itself. There's no salvation outside of justification by faith alone. There is not. That's a hill to die on. The authority of the Bible, that's a hill to die on. The deity of Christ, hill to die on. Trinity, hill to die on. We cannot partner in ministry with a church that denies any of these things. We cannot find ourselves linking arms with a ministry that denies these core, essential, first-importance doctrines. To do so would compromise the gospel. Now, we just saw 1 Corinthians 1.10, where Paul says, you know, unity, you all agree. Unity does mean that there are times where we do have to separate from somebody. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Paul also says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Dying on too few hills, if you're dying on not enough hills, then you're compromising truth. This is theological liberalism. Dying on too many hills means you're fostering division. May the Lord give us wisdom to land in just the right spot. How does this apply to persecution? Because if you're dying on too few, then you're probably going to be avoiding persecution when you probably should be being persecuted. If nothing is a hill to die on, then you're compromising and you're getting out of persecution while your brothers and sisters are over here suffering for their faith and you're just saying, I'll just deny the gospel and get out of it. On the other hand, if you're dying on too many hills, then you're inviting unnecessary persecution and suffering in your life and you even may risk suffering for unrighteousness' sake. And, of course, that's 1 Peter 2 and verse 20. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? I mean, if you're going to just sin, (laughs) of course you're going to suffer for it. But if when you do good and suffer and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so let us be people who are praying for the wisdom needed to land where God wants us to land. Now, I just kind of opened up a can of worms, and I'm moving on to the next point, <laughs> because there's a lot of questions that we could ask around this, but I'm just giving you an overview right now. We, we don't want to die on too few, and we don't want to die on too many, um, and that requires a great amount of wisdom in, uh, in, in coming to those conclusions. Point number three is this, instruction number three, application number three, pray for your persecutors. This should go without saying but I think that we forget this point. You cannot hate your persecutors. And I see some Christians falling into this trap that they absolutely despise the people who are coming after them. We cannot be like this. You cannot have that self-righteous complex. You need to be compassionate toward them because but for the grace of God you would be in their position Jesus tells us this in Matthew five forty four to 45 I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust notice that Jesus models your behavior off of his behavior He says, the reason you should pray for the people who persecute you is because of God's common grace. You don't drive out through Wayne County and it's raining out and all of a sudden you drive by this farmer's field and there's this like perfect square of no rain on this farmer's field because he's, you know, an unbeliever. Okay. This is an incredible mercy and kindness of the Lord to allow the rain to fall on that unbeliever's field. And so he simply says, love your enemies. L- look, at, look at God's benevolence towards others. Stephen, first martyr, is being stoned and he says this, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Jesus himself being persecuted or uh, um, crucified, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the attitude that we have towards those who are persecuting us. Number four. Strengthen your brothers and sisters. There's a connection between persecution and strengthening, and we see this in a couple passages. Acts 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they turned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see the connection between the suffering they're going through and the strengthening that takes place. And so one of our brothers or sisters here begins to face some sort of opposition. And what is our responsibility as the local church? To come alongside, to strengthen, encourage, because what are they going to be going through? Did I do the right thing? Did I not do the right thing? Should I have, is it compromised to do this? Is it not compromised to do that? And and it's our task to come alongside and encourage and exhort. Uh, 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so God himself in our suffering strengthens us. There are going to be brothers and sisters who are weak when it comes to enduring. And just to kind of wipe this aside right here, none of you know who that is right now. Okay, so if you're sitting there thinking, I'm going to be the strong one, it might even be your pride that is the reason why you're not the strong one. I don't know, okay? I don't know. We don't know what how this is going to happen and who's going to need strengthening and who's going to be the strong one or whatever it might be. And so we just simply come alongside in humility, strengthening our brothers and sisters. The temptation is this, and we saw this um, with, uh, I think we looked at a quote a few weeks ago from Vodi Bacham in one of his sermons. The temptation is going to be to just flip the switch to the off position. Remember, why is persecution different from other kinds of suffering? Because other kinds of suffering, they don't have an on-off switch. Cancer doesn't have an on-off switch. I mean, you can get treated for that, okay? But it's not like you just wake up and say, I'm turning this switch off today. Persecution has an off switch. I can just turn the switch off. And what is that? It's called compromise. I want this to stop. Turn the switch off. And we have to be exhorting one another, don't turn the switch off. Strengthen your brothers and sisters so that they don't do that. Uh, Paul observes this, this connection. Most of the brothers, having been, become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you see what happens? Paul is being persecuted. He's in prison. And now he says the result of this is that many more people are now strengthened and encouraged to go be bold and preach the gospel. And so it may be that the Lord uses our own suffering as a way to encourage other people in this very church to continue to endure. Number five, suffer with patience, courage, and cheerfulness. I actually stole this one from Thomas Watson. He gives three, uh, kind of the manner in which we are to suffer through persecution And he says, number one, patience, number two, courage, and number three, cheerfulness. And then in the same section in uh, his message on persecution, he says this, A Christian must not repine, but say, shall I not drink the cup of martyrdom which my father hath given me? Should I not accept the lot that the Lord has given me in life? Number six, This one probably could have been included in the risk section, but I'm just putting it as its own thing here. Be willing to die. Literally be willing to die. I I don't know if the Lord will call us this or not. We have to at least be willing. Acts 21.13. We already saw this, but we'll see it again. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die. Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. (laughs) This looks really good on like a P. Graham Dunn sign in your house. <laughs> it looks a little bit different when you've got to actually apply this one. I don't even know if they do this verse. Maybe they don't. Uh, but it's, it's really nice. You know, we like this verse. We like this. You know, yes, yes, 21st century America, modern conveniences, yes. <laughs> it doesn't look so good when we actually have to face it. And yet this could be a very real reality. Number seven, do not be anxious about your response. Trust the Lord. Your goal is not to win an argument, but to simply be an ambassador for Christ. Study hard. I'm not saying neglect that. But don't become anxious or obsessed with your defense. And the the text for this is Matthew 10. Be you aware, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So don't be anxious. Number eight, rejoice in your heavenly reward. We saw a little bit of this um, before, so I'm just going to give you three verses here, Matthew 10, 11 through 12, or 5, 10 through 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Uh, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So you're blessed, right? It's a paradigm shift. Mark 10, 29 to 30, Jesus says, uh, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So he talks about a reward that comes here, a blessing and a reward because of persecution. And then Acts five forty one, when they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Number nine is resolve to go to war. Resolve to go to war. Acts twenty-one, thirteen. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's ready to go to war for this. Now we are going to sing in a few moments a song of application, Um, and the song is, O Church, Arise. It is not, O Church, Be Passive. It is, O Church, Arise. And here's what one of the verses says. Our call to war, to love the captive soul... But to rage against the captor and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died an inheritance of nations. This call to be a Christian is a call to engage the world and go to war. It is not a call to go and install theater seating in our churches and to turn down the lights and turn up the green and blue mood lights and bring your moisturizer with you to church. It is bringing your Bibles to church it is bringing your Bibles to the culture, and it is taking the word of God and going out and being prepared for battle. Paul says, "Act like men." This, this, is, this is not a passive thing. This is something that our captain has called us to do. First Corinthians 16:13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. This is not a time for us to be passive and removed. It's not time for us to be obnoxious either. I'm not saying that. But it is a time to press in, to lean into the battle, and not be a deserter to the cause, but to lean in for the sake of Christ. Number 10, worship. I cannot say with 100% certainty that C.H. Spurgeon actually said this, but it is attributed to him. And so either way, it's a good quote. And uh, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. This should be a no brainer for us. We are Christians, which means what? We're worshipers. That's what we do. We worship. We worship on the mountaintop and we worship in the valley. We, we worship in prosperity and we worship when we're in the pit. And yes, There may be some strong waves that come at us. I don't know. I'm not saying that I know the future. I'm not saying that I know things are going to get harder. I think things are going to get harder because they are getting harder right now. I don't know that they're going to continue that way. I'm not claiming to know the future. But I am saying that instead of viewing this as someone's taking my rights away from me, we should be viewing this as the Lord is using these waves to push me against himself And to worship him more. Steve Lawson frequently says this. The problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. And I think we can extend that to all believers. The problem with Christians today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. Do I think that we will face persecution? Well, I told you in the introductory message, yes. In fact, that that question, do do you think we'll face persecution? In one sense, we already are facing it. Now, it's not on the level of some other countries, but we are facing it to some level. Every one of you knows that if you share the gospel here or there or somewhere, whatever, there is going to be some sort of opposition. In another sense, I believe the dial is being turned up. But whatever the outcome is, however this turns out, let us be the people that remain faithful to Christ and love him more than anything else. Let us worship him wherever he puts us. Let us live our lives backwards. You know, you ever hear that illustration, you know, what do you want written on your tombstone kind of a thing? Well, let me live my life back from that point. L- live your life backwards so that we are constantly living in light of eternity. And that Christ will one day say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And if you don't know Christ, get in the battle today. Trust in Christ through repentance and faith alone. There's nothing guaranteed for you either, as far as tomorrow goes. But we do know how it's going to work out in terms of eternity. And so you may be fine. You're an unbeliever and, and you have no persecution and there's, there's all this prosperity and all this kind of stuff. And yet eternity is at stake. Let us make the investments in the eternal and not in the temporal. Thank you, Lord, for your continued faithfulness to us. Let us be those who arise as a church I pray that you would help us, as the song reminds us, to put our armor on, to find strength that God has given to us, that we would hear the call of Christ, our captain, and that the weak would say that they are strong because of what you have done through us. Let us not be passive Christians removed from the battle, but let us be engaged Let us be cautious that we're not dying on wrong hills, but that we're dying on hills that are worth dying for. Thank you for your kindness to us. In Christ's name, amen.